0: Just run to the box, to the box.
1: Jog or run? No, jog. Jog. Ready? From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Matzai, and this is ReSound.
0: It's cold, isn't it? Yes, let's go. We're inside. Back inside. I don't know.
1: I might have to do that one again. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audible treats we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on. The airwaves, the web, audio festivals far afield. And then bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound.
2: And when he says set, I just... All the air in, I take a deep inhale. Take my last look at my competitors in the lane. Now I'm focused. Just thinking drive and go, drive and go.
1: Obviously, I'm not a runner. In fact, I hate running. But I love watching runners. And who wouldn't? Animals, people, runners are just so efficient and beautiful
2: and graceful. Just thinking drive and go, drive and go.
1: I like to imagine that when I'm watching a 440-yard race, for instance, I somehow transfer my spirit into the runner's stride, and then I'm literally on their heels, feeling the breeze, the motion, the pure and unadulterated freedom. Put another way, I'm a sucker for every Chariots of Fire moment I've ever seen. When that
3: gun fires, it's almost like I'm the bullet.
1: Today on Resound, run it. Sleep, sweet,
2: sleep. Drive, drop,
1: drop, a Stay tuned. Nothing runs like a horse. Some animals might run faster, but none run more beautifully. In your imagination, you can see the slow motion images of the rippling muscles, the pounding hooves, the sunshine reflecting on their gleaming coats. Well, I knew one horse who looked like every cliche, but ran like no other, and she ran straight into my heart. She was only three, and I was only fourteen. When you're fourteen, your brain is a window. Wide open, letting the tornado of your life blow right through. And amongst all the swirling input, there are certain things that come in and never leave. It's June 1973. This was the number one hit song.
2: I'm coming home I've done my time.
1: and Secretariat has just become the first horse in 25 years to win the Triple Crown, obliterating his competition in the Belmont Stakes by 31 lengths and setting a new world record. Secretariat
4: is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine.
1: Interest in horse racing is soaring.
4: Listen to the crowd, listen.
1: Women's lib is in full swing. Ms. Magazine is just one year old. The Equal Rights Amendment has been ratified in 30 states, but still is a very contentious issue. And in September of 73, a loudmouth former tennis champion named Bobby Riggs becomes the male chauvinist pig that everyone loves to hate.
5: The male is king. The male is supreme. I've
1: said it over and over again. I still feel that way. Girls play a nice game of tennis for girls. Riggs had to eat his own words when tennis great Billie Jean King beat him in a match dubbed the Battle of the Sexes at the Houston Astrodome in front of 30,000 people watched on television by 50 million more. She beat him in three straight sets. Though it was a media circus with a lot of over-the-top bluster, he rode into the Astrodome on a rickshaw pulled by four scantily clad models, and she came on a Cleopatra-era litter carried by muscular men dressed as slaves, it captured the attention of the country, tennis fan or no. King's victory changed not only the face of women's tennis, but by all accounts moved the women's liberation movement forward immeasurably. Fast forward two years to 1975. Enter the beautiful Philly Ruffian.
5: Mira, with Survivor's Sorrow ranging up and Ruffian along the inside now moving and taking the lead. That's
1: she was 17 hands tall with a dark coat and a small white star on her forehead. As a yearling, people thought she was too fat to be a serious contender on the track until they saw her run.
5: The other's now far back as Ruffian draws away to lead by nine. It's Ruffian in front and going easily.
4: She was an amazing uh, mover. Uh, she just seemed to detach herself from the fields. She went, went to the front and just left the rest of them behind. I mean, I think her average margin of victory was like 10 lengths or something. It was unbelievable. She set two track records. Uh, and she never seemed to be even trying that hard.
1: That was John McAvoy, then editor of the Daily Racing Forum, and father of my good friend Julia McAvoy, who I rode with when I was young. Like many 14-year-old girls, I loved horses, and Ruffian, well, she was a phenom who came along just as my adoration of the species was at its height. In Ruffian's first race, she won by 15 lengths and set a new record, and in every subsequent race she broke the track record or matched it, making her undefeated in her first 10 races. By the time she was two, she was dubbed Queen of the Phillies and was fast earning a reputation as one of the best female racehorses to ever come along. As they move to the 16th pole, it's Ruffian in front
5: by 7. Ruffian going easily in front. Others now far back as Ruffian throws away to lead by 9. It's Ruffian in front and going easily.
1: When it came time to race in the most famous of all horse races, the Kentucky Derby in 1975, Ruffian had a minor injury and couldn't race. The cult Foolish Pleasure won the Derby that year and there were inevitable comparisons between him and Ruffian, the best male horse, the best female. And everyone wondered about an equine battle of the sexes. What would happen if they were ever to meet on a track? July 6, 1975 was the date of the great match as it was known. Foolish Pleasure, the Kentucky Derby winner against Ruffian, the top filly. Boy against girl. 50,000 people came to watch, and another 18 million tuned in on TV. People who loved horses, people who loved sport, people who were caught up in the superiority of either sex. There was enough drama in this story to appeal to everyone. Here's John McAvoy again.
4: Foolish Pleasure was trained by a man named Leroy Jolly, a very good trainer. And uh, his father was Moody Jolly, an old Kentucky hard boot. And as you know, this was during the feminism era. And Moody Jolly was an old cracker. And uh, he said before the race, we're going to beat this bitch, which was pretty astonishing to most of us who had heard that.
1: Now remember, there were only three major networks back then, maybe five or six channels on the TV that actually worked. A big event then was a really, really big event. Everyone talked about it, watched it, then talked about it some more.
6: I think that Ruffian's going to win because she's the better horse.
7: I pick Foolish Pleasure just because he's a male.
6: Ruffian because she's a female.
7: I like Foolish Pleasure because I'm a male chauvinist pig. It is
5: now post time.
1: I was crouching just inches from the TV. Coming out of the gate, Ruffian hit her shoulder hard. She collected herself and ran. After a quarter mile, Ruffian was ahead by a nose. One furlong later, she was in front by half a length. Then, suddenly, confusion. No one knew what was happening. Her jockey was trying to stop her. I could see him pulling on her reins with all his might, but she kept running. Foolish pleasure charged ahead. By the time Ruffian finally stopped, I could see that her leg was broken. The dream race had become an absolute nightmare. I could feel a shockwave rippling through the crowd. Watching at home, I was aghast, stunned. My chest hurt. I called out to my mom. In the stands, astonishment, horror, tears. Officials came running. She was rushed into an ambulance. I feel sick even thinking about it. The two sesamoid bones in Ruffian's right front leg were shattered, and because she had continued to try to run after her injury, the wound was filled with dirt from the trap. An attempt was made to operate on the leg, but it was unsuccessful,
8: and Ruffian had to be destroyed.
1: Destroyed. What a word. Ruffian was buried at Belmont Park with her nose pointed toward the finish line for all of eternity. Racing changed that day. Safety was called into question, procedures improved upon. Everyone watching the race experienced a shared heartbreak, shared guilt, and shared misery. Until then, at 14, I'd never stopped to think about how things can go wrong, especially when the stakes are so amped up. Now, as an adult, I think about it all the time. The whole country was caught up in the battle of the sexes. We'd already had one in the famous tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs in 73. Then we demanded another one on the racetrack. And there, the beautiful, undefeated ruffian paid for our follies with her life. Did we do this to her? Were we all to blame? I didn't watch many horse races after that. The whole sport just seemed tainted. But the horses? You can never stop loving the horses. Oh, ruffian, what a beauty you were. What talent you showed us. What hearts you captured. Mine was one, and I never ever forgot you.
0: I am a woman, hear me roar In numbers too big to ignore And I know too much to go back and pretend Cause I've heard it all before And I've been down there on the floor No one's ever gonna
1: That was Ruffian, written by me, Gwen Maxi, and produced by Katie Mingle
9: kind of an obsession. I just couldn't really get it out of my head. The story to me was about pursuit, pursuit of something that may not be obtainable, but just the idea of pursuit itself.
1: When it comes to running, animals obviously have it all over us. Well, to start with, they have the decided advantage of running on two more legs. Antelope are some of the fastest running animals on the earth. They clock 50, 60 miles an hour. So, not many people would entertain the notion of running after one. Except maybe veteran audio producer and essayist Scott Carrier.
5: Yeah, there they go. What? There they go. You see him crossing over uh, there? No. Over to the right. Off, quite a ways away, in fact. Way out there.
10: A couple of years ago, my brother and I went to Wyoming to run down an antelope.
5: I only see three over there.
10: Well, there were about eight down there.
5: Yeah.
6: It
10: was August, and our plan was to chase one animal until it overheated and collapsed. It just took off running.
9: OK. You want to follow it?
5: Yeah. That's a really big flight.
10: We had good reasons for what we were doing. One was that it seemed entirely possible. Another had to do with an argument concerning human evolution. It's a scientific argument, so it takes a few minutes to explain. Remember the scene in 2001 where an ape man realizes he can use a bone as a weapon and murders another ape man? Then he throws the bone in the air, and it becomes a space station orbiting the Earth. The theory behind this scene is that we separated from the apes when we stood upright and freed our hands to make and use tools, especially weapon-type tools for hunting and killing other animals. It's called the hunting hypothesis, and there's nothing wrong with it except that we don't have any physical evidence to support it. We just haven't found any tools or weapons that are that old. Well, some of the work that my brother does as a biologist made him interested in another theory of human evolution. You might call it the running hypothesis. He believed that he and I were probably good enough runners to be able to run down big game without using any weapons at all. And he thought that if we could do it, then maybe our early ancestors could have done it too. Shortly before we went to Wyoming, I went to see Owen Lovejoy. He teaches anthropology at Kent State University. We talked about the running hypothesis, and he thought it was pretty funny. <laughs>
7: <laughs> I mean, all you have to do is think about it for a minute. I mean, what game are they going to run down? Things like uh, uh, wildebeest or something?
10: Mm-hmm. Zebra.
7: And, and they're just going to start off running after this thing without any, you know? without any advanced weaponry of any kind. They've got no spears, right, no bow and arrow, and they just start running after a wildebeest.
10: Yeah. Well, I think that's the idea that they have.
7: Uh-huh. The, the, the weak link in that whole behavior that you're describing is the inability of the animal to run any faster because it's so damn slow, and it's so damn slow because it's a clumsy biped. Is that an animal adapted to hunting? Slow, awkward, little, no olfaction, no uh, protective vision. If it were an effective quadruped, it could do everything that you're describing in half the time. I mean, imagine a bunch of Paiute Indians that could run as rapidly and as successfully as a German Shepherd dog. (laughs) They'd catch the thing in three minutes and devour it. Well, I just happen to have a German Shepherd, and I take him with me
10: when I go running. Let's go. And Lovejoy's right. He's a better runner than I am. In fact, most of the time, he'd rather have me take my bicycle. So there's no question about me being slower. But as far as being clumsy, Lovejoy calls bipedalism clumsy because of reasons that have to do with biomechanics. Running bipedally takes twice as much energy as running quadrupedally. That is, when my dog and I run, he uses half the energy that I do. So Lovejoy and many other anthropologists think it's crazy to assume that the survival strategy of the early hominids involved running after quadrupeds. They've just got us beat, both in terms of speed and efficiency. But the thing is, if my dog and I go running in the summer, in the middle of the day, when temperatures hit 85 to 100 or more degrees. It's a whole different ball game. He'll come with me and run for a while, but then he walks and lags behind, and sometimes he just goes home. So if I'm an awkward and clumsy biped, why can I outrun my dog? Well, it's because he overheats. The main way that he and most other quadrupeds cool themselves when they run is by breathing. The air coming in and going out of their mouth evaporates water off their tongues. And we do this too, but we do it all over our body by sweating. And then we get a nice flow of air directly over our skin because we don't have a fur coat. So we can't run as fast as a quadruped, but we can run farther, especially in high heat. And when you remember that we're using twice the energy, this seems like a very strange biological paradox. And it was this paradox, combined with the argument about not being able to hunt without tools, that made my brother and I decide it was time to try to run down an antelope. Antelocapra americana, the pronghorn, the second fastest land mammal on the planet. We thought that if we could keep one running for two hours on a hot day, we'd have it beat.
5: They didn't even give me a chance. I, uh, I was able to follow, follow them for about 30 minutes, but the problem was I wasn't sure if I was following the same ones I started following because I started out following four, buck, two uh, does, and, and, and a younger one. Huh. And uh, they ran into, after about 10 minutes, they ran into a group of about five more antelope, went over a hill, and then on the other side of the hill they broke into two groups again. And so, I think I ended up following the same four, but I couldn't be sure. And I followed them for another 15 minutes, and then they ran into a much larger group, ran for ways, and uh, followed that larger group for a while, and then that group broke into at least two more groups. And at that point, I just sort of gave up and quit, quit following them, because I, I didn't know, you know which, which individuals I, I was chasing. Huh. And, then i got confused on the roads i mean where's the road we were on it's down here yeah okay what happened was i came out on this road way over there yeah. somewhere and uh, and i got lost i mean i i didn't know where really where i was i felt like that road i was walking along that road for about 15 minutes i felt like that was the wrong direction but uh so we started over there yeah well they ran a circle then um i mean because we went off I don't remember crossing this road, but I must have originally. Early this, on. This one? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, they ran in a circle. They came back. Um, well, strike one. Huh. So. What do you what do you think we should do? I think we should go look for some more. Not uh, not keep doing these? Well, I don't know where they are. I, I think the main group went off the back, but we may have circled back there.
10: It could have been the Serengeti, orange and green and purple plains, a hot sun, thin high clouds, blue mountains on the horizon. (laughs) They just zoomed, and they weren't stopping. It could have been the Serengeti, but we were no primitive hunters. We quickly realized we knew nothing about the animal we were chasing or the land we were running on. We ran after several herds that first day without much success. (laughs) That night, sleeping out, I remember feeling very high in terms of elevation, like being dizzy. There weren't any clouds in the sky, and it just seemed like too much open space. Satellites in orbit, the moon in orbit, an antelope in the bushes, chewing their cuds and laughing amongst themselves. The next morning, we ate a breakfast of chocolate chip cookies and orange juice and walked around waiting for the air to heat up.
5: What is it? It's a white-tailed jackrabbit.
10: We found dead animals, bare bones, an abandoned house. You think someone used to live here? We saw dust devils, horned toads, an eagle.
5: Oh, this is nice.
10: We found a small lake, some badlands, and a rattlesnake. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it never did get very hot that day but in the afternoon we had a good long chase after a female and two males. They ran in circles around an area of about 10 square miles. There were two hills and a long smooth valley in between and the chase went up and around and back and forth between these hills, the antelope running short periods of time but covering long distances and then stopping and waiting for us to catch up. The two males ran behind the female as if they were trying to protect her. And sometimes they'd all go in different directions. But we stayed behind the female and the males would eventually rejoin her. One thing we'd learned the day before was that we could run much less distance than the antelopes by staying well inside their circle. And we were also starting to communicate with each other over long distances. For instance, if my brother was on top of one of the hills and he could see where the antelope were going, he'd point and I wouldn't have to run to the top of the hill. So we were running after these three and feeling pretty good about not letting them ditches. And a couple times, we even got within 50 yards of them. And I'd look into their eyes, trying to see some sign of fear or fatigue. But all I kept seeing were very quiet animals that seemed to know exactly who we were, what we were proposing, and didn't seem to be in the least bit worried. Anyway, we ran after these three for about an hour, and then they found a large herd, or the herd found them. And they ran up and over a hill, and by the time we got to the top of the hill, the herd had split into three groups of about three or four antelopes each. And each of the groups seemed to have at least one female that looked exactly like the one we'd started chasing. The magic shell game trick, again. We weren't really all that physically tired, mainly mentally beaten, and we went home. I haven't gone back to Wyoming for the purpose of chasing antelope, but I drive through there sometimes on my way somewhere else. And one time last spring I was going east and there was a train along the highway also going east at about the same speed. And suddenly there were three antelope running alongside the engine, chasing it. It was incredible. It was even more incredible to see the three of them simultaneously speed up, pull out in front of the engine, and fly across the tracks. I pulled over and waited for the train to go by, and there they were, three young males, looking back at me with those same black eyes and hardly breathing at all.
1: Running After Antelope by Scott Carrier. He published a book of the same name in 2001. Recent producer Katie Mingle caught up with Scott recently to talk with him about his work. When my
9: brother first proposed the idea that humans may have evolved as endurance predators, most people thought it was a joke. But the fact was that there were several ethnographic accounts detailing how... Uh, uh, primitive hunters had actually done this, run animals to heat exhaustion. After we tried that first attempt in 86, I wanted to t- try to visit some of these hunting and gathering groups and see if they still did it. And one of the the accounts of uh, people who had done it before were among the Seri Indians in uh, northern Mexico. And so we drove down there and and talked to them and asked them if they still do it, hoping that if they did, we could go out with them. But the uh, people we met down there, the series, said that they no longer did that, but their grandfathers did it. In 2000, there was a BBC series, Nature, with Richard Attenborough. They actually documented some uh, bushmen in South Africa running down a kudu, a large ungulate about the size of an elk with very long, straight horns. These are the
2: sand people of the Kalahari Desert, the last tribe on earth to use what some believe is the most ancient hunting technique of all, the persistence hunt.
4: They run down their prey.
9: They got it on videotape, and that was the first hard evidence of it it happening in the modern day anyway.
2: And then the kudu collapses from sheer exhaustion. It's close to death. Karoe's spear throw now is scarcely more than a symbolic gesture.
9: Any theory of of human evolution is also a story of uh, our origin. Like an origin myth, a a theory of human evolution is an attempt to explain our nature, how we fit into the rest of the animal kingdom, where we came from, why we're here,
1: where we're going. Scott Carrier, talking with ReSound producer Katie Mingle. That was just a little tease. Hear the full-length interview with Scott at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you're hearing my voice at this very moment, then you, dear listener, are exactly who we want to invite to our next party. Come watch as we dissect an episode of our show. How we choose the pieces, find the music, spar over the script, and put it all together. Join me, Gwen Maxi, and ReSound producer Katie Mingle at The Hideout on Tuesday, April 9th at 7pm to see just how the sausage, or seitan, is made. And speaking of sausage, we'll have food trucks there for your dining pleasure. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes. Join us April 9th for a ReSound Redux at The Hideout. For more information, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. Is there any moment more filled with anticipation than the split second before the starter's gun goes off? The runners in their lanes, the swimmers on their blocks, the horses in their gates, poised to explode every cell at the ready. The National Track and Field Hall of Fame in New York City commissioned audio producer Ben Rubin to explore the minds of runners as they prepare to race.
2: Every step of your life, you're thinking, how can I make each step in my race faster? No matter if you're washing a car, or walking to the bathroom in your house, or going for a jog. No matter what you're doing shopping for groceries, you, as a sprinter, you're always thinking, how can I be faster?
0: I'm a high jumper. That's my thing. It's interesting. When I visualize the night before I meet, I always visualize in the third person and I'm outside of my body and I can see myself completing a jump from different angles. Sometimes from behind, sometimes from the side. But when I'm actually in a competition, I visualize inside my body.
3: I don't listen to music before I run. You know, a lot of guys you seen with headsets on and stuff, I can't do that, that takes away from me. But I can put a song in my head and sing it, and it gives me that energy and that charge that I need. In order to beat your opponent, you got to know your opponent,
2: you got to know them like the back of your hand if you want to know their weaknesses and their strengths so you can take advantage of the weaknesses and avoid them hitting you with their strength. So I watch them while I'm warming up.
1: He can run from the front, he can run from the back, he can run from the middle.
2: Get to the call room, put our bags down, everybody take your warm ups off, get your hip numbers on, alright? Jumping up and down. Come on muscles, let's get fired. let's get fired. we got a job to do, got a job to do. Get out there, walk us to the track, we're walking, and then again, I'm walking behind everybody, I want to see everybody walk in front of me as we go to the track. So we're walking, walking, you hear the spice on the concrete as we walk, we're going away. Keep these spikes and warming them up. Like it tracks the burning out. They ain't doing nothing getting warm. They're ready to grip this track. That's what's happening. So I watch them while I'm warming up. Watch them, see them doing the drill. Okay, okay, okay. You seem like you got a little pep in the step today. Yeah, 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 yeah. He coming out the hole a little fast over there. Just get me psyched up. Cause if you see them coming out fast, you got. Okay, I gotta get ready. They bring the pain. They bring the pain. I'm gonna get ready too. Before I start the race, uh, the nervousness is making my heart beat fast, and it's making me want to breathe fast,
3: so I have to slow down my breathing. I definitely have a nervousness right before, uh, you know, the gun goes off. You're sitting there just on edge, and you're almost at the point of shaking
1: because you've got all that adrenaline going.
2: I'm the type of person that gets anxious because I get ready to run, but then it's time to run. I'm not actually... I don't want to run no more when it's actually time. Man, I don't feel like running. That's why I used to go out fast, like too fast and, you know, end up dying. So anytime I get nervous or anxious, I analyze why I got nervous. So why am I anxious? Then once I actually realize why I'm anxious,
3: it goes away. The flight check is when when you get on a track, first thing you do is go through your flight check. And your flight check is making sure all the muscles and everything is firing, or you don't feel any pain, or nothing hurts, or everything is on right. You check your shoes. From the shoes, to your socks, to your calves and your, your shins. How do I feel? Everything checks out. You go to your knees, how do they feel? Did
2: I feel like I drank enough water before? You check
3: your hamstrings, your quads. Does
2: anything hurt? You
3: do a couple of stretches or whatever is necessary. Do
2: my legs feel like they're ready to run?
3: You make sure your back is loose, your hands, you crack your knuckles, you adjust your neck, you adjust your back.
2: Is so there anything that really feels a little out of sync? Because so you don't want it to be out of sync when you run, you know?
0: By this time, I've shed my warm-ups. There's something really nervous in me about taking my warm-ups off. It's almost like that's the worst part, is pulling the sweats over your spikes because I'm always afraid that they're gonna get hung up or I'm not gonna get them off in time. So it just really serves to give me a little extra boost of adrenaline.
3: If you feel a nail, you know, a a hangnail on your toe, You go almost to a panic state. I now, oh my God, I got a hang now. It's just crazy because you become ultra sensitive to everything. But then you turn around and calm all of it down because then you have to be one with yourself and you have to be one with the starter. You have to be one with the track. You run the race probably through your head maybe once or twice. I'm supposed to be here, I'm supposed to be here, I'm supposed to be here. And then after you do that, I say, uh, I I got this off a TV show, uh, engage the mechanism where I just kind of shut out everything around me. And it's kind of like the only thing I hear is my heartbeat. And, you know, I say a little prayer in that moment. And, you know, I just ask God to allow me to maximize my potential at this moment. I'm not asking for victory. I'm not asking, you know, for any special favor as far as winning and losing. But it's more or less just help me maximize my potential at this moment. And then it's race time.
10: And if you're not ready, it doesn't matter at this point because you have to be ready. I want
3: that adrenaline coming when he says, Runners, take your mark. Because I only, I only got 10 seconds at, or 9 seconds at, the, at that point. you know. But if it's pumping, 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 then they say, take your mark. Well, I'm exhausted. you know. Once I get in the blocks, it's like, <gasps> I don't want to be exhausted. I want to be on fire at that moment. And that moment when they say, take your mark, set. Set. I become the gun. So... When that gun fires, it's almost like I'm the bullet being fired out of the pistol. And that's my reaction. When I hear that sound, it's almost like there's a firing pin smacking me in my butt and pushing me. I'm the bullet, and it's only me in the chamber.
2: And when he says set, I just breathe all the air in. I take a deep inhale. One last look at my competitors in the lane. Now I'm focused. Just thinking, drive and go, drive and go. And then I hold my breath. And then. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Drive, drop, drive,
3: drive. Pick them up, pick them up, pick them up.
2: I let all the air out. And that's when I start running as fast as I can.
3: When you're running and you're so relaxed in what you're doing. To where a song can just pop into your mind about 30 meters. That is the the ultimate point I think an athlete wants to be, because that's when you get that peak performance. It's almost like everything is moving in slow motion, and you're watching the birds kind of slowly fly by, and you hear that song just whistling in your ear.
0: When I take off, and I start to climb in the air, it all goes pretty fast. But once I hit that apex of the jump, and my hips or up over the bar, time really slows down. I mean, you can just feel this rotation and it feels like someone's grabbed a hold of your hips and really given you a a push, a boost up in the air.
2: Come off the turn, I'm in the front. I'm in the front. And who know, they coming from, and they just stalking me like everything. I'm in the front, so I'm just thinking, just get away, just get away, just get away. Turn on the afterburn. hold on, hold on, just stretch it out, start going get to the top of the curve. Turn on the afterburn. hold on, hold on. me left in the Go. Range. high step, high step. Cody Miller come up. I hear a step pow, pow, pow. powering down, powering down like a train. See him come up beside me at the peripheral. You gotta hold on, this is always happening. They're trying to get you at the end, but you can fight them off. You can fight them off
3: at the end. It's just, compete, 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 and then lean at the tape.
2: Go ahead, reach and go, reach and go, reach and go. Pump them arms, pump them arms, baby, pump them arms. Get across the line, just smile out, smile out. And we get down to the tape. <laughs> Got him by like a half of a step. Well, That's that's kind of stuff I live for. Though. I live for those intense moments like that right there.
10: It's hard to accept the fact sometimes that you are human, but it's true. And I've had a heart surgery in year 2000, but as athletes, and you can ask almost any athlete, they'll tell you, we believe we're invincible. Because if we go in there with any other thought, there's no chance of us accomplishing our goal. Because we have to believe, we have to confuse ourselves into believing that no matter what's wrong with you or what you're dealing with, It's not going to be a factor to what you're trying to accomplish.
3: We believe
10: we're
7: invincible.
1: We Believe We Are Invincible by Ben Rubin, celebrating the discipline of the sprinter. When it comes to the opposite end of the runner's spectrum, the long-distance marathon, that's a horse of a different color. One of the most remarkable marathon finishes in recent history was recorded in 2009 in Boston. There, Kenyan runner Selina Koske had her sights on the finish line, having traveled halfway around the world just to be there. She grew up in the highlands of western Kenya in a hut with no electricity and no plumbing. As a kid, Selena used to run 10 kilometers to school, barefoot, just for the fun of it. Her passion is now her profession, and it's been a long,
8: hard slog. I think the best way to introduce you to Selena Cosgay is to play you a condensed version of the last quarter mile of the 2009 Boston Marathon. Amazing De-ray. The big story was Kara Goucher from Oregon. The last time an American won Boston was 1985. Goucher entered the stretch drive shoulder to shoulder with last year's winner, an Ethiopian named Dire Tune. Everyone was focused on those two.
0: Dere Tune looking brilliant at this point, our defending champion from Ethiopia in the front. But Kara's coming back! Kara's coming back. But
8: chugging away a step or two behind was a dark, thin woman who just refused to go away.
7: Here comes Koskye. Oh now it's Koskye, Selena Kosgei, The winner of the Boston oh, Marathon. Two days Tune's
1: gone. Tune collapses at the finish.
4: The closest finish in women's Boston Marathon history.
8: In a race that took more than two and a half hours, the margin of victory was less than a second. A few weeks later, I traveled to Western Kenya to meet Selena Kosgei. That's the way you pronounce it. It turns out she's made a career of coming from behind. For years, she raced internationally as a sprinter. When she started slowing down, she switched to the 10,000 meters, but she struggled. So in her late 20s, she tried the marathon for the first time. Now she's 32. This was her first really big win. So you know the image of uh, there's a rainbow and there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Yeah. Well. You found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. That must change your life. Completely.
3: Yeah, it changed. It was one second, but it
9: changed
8: my life. I feel like I am I'm somebody else, different. Different and not so different.
1: We are going to a place where when it is raining, we normally
3: train there.
8: The worst thing a runner can do is break routine. So an hour after I got there, we went for a run. I mean, Selena went for a run. I rode alongside her in the car and asked questions. I mean, do you get up in the morning saying, I can't wait to go out for my run today, or is it something you have to do?
1: It's something you have to do got
8: city a job. You have to do it every day. Actually, she trains three times a day, three days a week, and twice the other four days, sometimes long runs, sometimes weight training, sometimes speed work, all for just two marathons a year. That's as many as your body can handle. Do you love this or...? Yeah, I love this. When you train, are you in pain?
3: Yeah, of course. You have to be in pain.
8: No pain, no gain, they say. Yeah,
3: yeah, no pain, no gain. It's normal.
8: Here it's normal. This part of Kenya is thick with runners. Olympic medalists, world record holders. You can see them on the red dirt roads, running together in
3: packs.
8: (laughs) The climate here is perfect for running, and so is the altitude, about 8,000 feet. And there are training camps now, some owned by foreigners, where runners can focus on getting better. But if you spend time here, you find that the real secret to the Kenyans' success is that they work so hard, and they want it so much. Selina Kosgay grew up in a mud hut, the tenth child of a family of subsistence farmers. There was no plumbing or electricity. She got her first shoes at age 14. She knew early on that running was a way to lift herself up. Around here, the nicest houses, the biggest cars, all belong to runners. You know, when you talk to American runners, it's about the psychology of it, it's about overcoming the difficulties. It's not about money.
1: But it is the same with them because they also go for money. If they don't win, they are not saying it's fun. It's something difficult. You have to work for it. Running a marathon is not running for fun. You have
3: to be running for money. (laughs)
8: You or I have to pay to enter a marathon. Because Selena is an elite runner, race organizers pay her an appearance fee, provided she finishes under a certain time. In Boston, her fee was $30,000. Adidas, her sponsor, pays her 30000 a year to wear their clothes when she races. So just by doing okay, Selena can make a decent living. The big money comes when she wins. When she won Boston, she got $200,000 in prize money and bonuses. That's a big payday in a country where the average income is less than $400 a year. But Selena knows it won't last forever. She figures she's got three or four more years of running left, so she's careful about her spending. Instead of buying a trampoline, she runs in place on this old truck tire. She keeps cows and chickens to cut down on food costs. She eats what she's always eaten, cornmeal mush with small portions of meat and vegetables. She drives a secondhand Toyota RAV4 that she bought from another Boston Marathon champ. And she's holding on to her $300 a month job with the provincial prison system. She used to be a guard. Now she works in the personnel office when she's not training, which is pretty rare. Her boss, Julius Adaro, says he's happy to cut her some slack. Almost all Kenyan runners have government jobs. We are aware of uh, what athletics has done to our country. It has put our country in the map. And uh, it's government policy to support such international athletes to the hilt. Selena has become something of a celebrity in Kenya. There was a parade for her when she got back from Boston. Her picture was in all the papers. Everywhere she goes, people congratulate her. But when I got there, she still hadn't been home to see her mother. So she and her husband, Barnabas Kinyor, a former world-class hurdler, drove out for a quick visit. The farm is miles from anywhere in a rolling green patchwork of cornfields and gardens. When we arrived, we found that Selena's mother and sisters and cousins had made a huge meal for us. Selena paid for this house about 10 years ago. It's made of rough wooden boards with a tin roof. She's offered to build a better one, but her mom says she's fine with what she's got. She's just happy Selena's doing well. When we finished eating, the whole extended family gathered in the dirt yard to sing us a song of welcome. Marathons are brutal on the body and on family life. Selena's got two kids aged 9 and 13. They live three hours from where she trains. So does her husband. She hardly sees them. When she quits, she says she might just go back to her job at the prison, that way the family could live together. But what she'd really like to do is open a camp for aspiring young runners to help them do what she did. Money is great, she says, but in the long run, she'd rather make history.
3: That was runner
1: by Jonathan Miller for The Working Series, produced by Homelands Productions.
4: This is simply poetry And most... How do you describe perfection? Why try? Let's just watch her run.
1: At the top of our show, I introduced you to my favorite filly, Ruffian. Champion racehorse, undefeated phenom, who carried not only the jockey on her back, but the hopes of many feminists of the 1970s in her last tragic match race when she broke her leg and had to be destroyed. Now we come to the end of our show, and Third Coast Artistic Director Julie Shapiro wants to introduce you to another groundbreaking, breathtaking lady horse of the
6: track by way of a letter, a love letter. Dear Z. It's late, but I've had it on my mind to write to you for weeks, and with the snow falling steadily outside, Nathaniel at band practice for another hour, it's the perfect time to start a letter. I still remember the exact moment I met you, about 15 months ago, when an email from my dear mother-in-law popped into my inbox with a link to a news article she thought I'd find interesting. Given my textbook horse girl identity growing up, including those 12 years spent competing at shows across the country almost every weekend, rain or shine, people forward me horsey stuff all the time. I don't usually dig into those links because I've mostly put the horse world behind me. I've moved on in my life, mostly. So who knows what compelled me to read that article, having ignored so many others? What I do know is that I was immediately hooked. Call it love at first sight and spent the hours afterward clicking on links, reading more articles, and watching videos all about you, including that unbelievable one. So you first showed up on my radar that night, but by that time you were already a proven champ. 14 races entered, 14 wins. Zenyatta, you were unbeatable. I kept reading and learned about your past, how you were born all legs in Kentucky, a big brown filly with a white blaze on your face and two white socks on your back legs. How as a yearling, you were bought for a pittance, well, by industry standards, by the founder of a major rock and roll label. How he named you Zenyatta after a song by one of the bands in his stable and moved you out to California and how you didn't even start racing until way into your third year. I guess that's a pretty late start for a racehorse, but you definitely made up for lost time, usually with your good friend Mike Smith in the saddle, decked out in those sassy pink and teal silks. At 17.2 hands, you were way taller than most of the boys you kept beating, bigger than most horses that ever stepped foot on a racetrack, but above all, it was your incredible personality that set you apart from the others. You were gentle and playful and loved posing for the camera. And then there was that dancing thing you did on your way to the starting gate every single time. Zenyatta,
8: look what she's doing with her front right there, Randy.
4: This is patented Zenyatta. And we'll talk about this a little later on, these dance moves that she goes
8: through.
6: Plus, you had that funny habit of breaking out of the gate last in every race.
8: Zenyatta, a little slow to get going. And the bad start has Zenyatta at the back of the pack. Zenyatta
5: is dead last. Zenyatta's dead last early.
6: And staying back there until it seemed simply not possible for you to get to the finish line first.
10: Zenyatta is still last. Got to be a good 12 off this
4: Except
6: that you always manage to get there first. And man, did those announcers lose it when you did. Uh,
4: And Zenyatta just making it look all too easy. This is simply poetry in motion. How do you describe perfection? Why try? Let's just watch her run. This is Zenyatta. Zenyatta's kicked into gear. And here she comes. Right on by. Zenyatta suddenly to
9: She's won 11! just another perfect day for the queen, Zenyatta!
6: Zenyatta, you just kept racing and winning. I know because I started following your every move, your every race, your every Facebook post, along with your legions of fans around the world. So I remember when you got voted the second best female athlete of 2009 by the Associated Press runner-up to Serena Williams. Not bad. And when that video of you drinking a Guinness out of a Tupperware container was making the rounds.
7: Zenyatta enjoying her Guinness this morning after a nice little gallop.
6: In March 2010, you won your 15th race. And a few months later, your 16th. And then in June, I watched your 17th race from a hotel in Dublin. It was a balmy afternoon in California where you were running... In a cold and rainy early morning in Ireland, where I was glued to my laptop. And I pretty much screamed at the top of my lungs along with the announcer as you zoomed up from last place to win the race. <laughs>
9: Stack this day in your
5: minds and hearts. The Queen continues her legend, 17
6: in a row! I did apologize for the noise at the front desk the next morning, but I think by then I'd crossed a line. Case in point, one night a few weeks later I came home a little tipsy from a show and bought a $43 t-shirt with a crappy iron-on illustration of you. And it's true, all I really wanted for my birthday was a plastic briar model of you, which I was lucky to even get because those sold out fast. In August, you won your 18th straight race, and then in early October, your 19th. At this point, you'd broken so many records. Dubbed the queen of racing, you'd become a superheroine to people all over the world. Even 60 Minutes caught the Zenyatta bug.
9: Next Saturday, she could become the first great American athlete to retire undefeated, In more than half a century.
6: Then, last November, you flew east to Kentucky to run in the 2010 Breeders' Cup Classic against a daunting field of 11 other horses, all boys. This was to be your last race ever and could extend your record to an unbelievable 20 straight wins. There was so much at stake, so much pressure from all the experts and pundits and racing know-it-alls.
9: The stakes are extremely high, and not just in millions of dollars.
6: I was really nervous for you in the days leading up to that race.
9: Zenyatta is so adored by horse lovers that if she doesn't beat the boys and win one last time, hearts will be broken everywhere.
4: The story will continue in a moment.
6: I wanted to watch the Breeders' Cup in real time, but found myself at a good friend's wedding in downtown Chicago right at post-time. I tried my best to pay attention to the ceremony, but was all too aware that you were galloping as fast as you could right around the time the children's choir was shouting its way through bicycle built for two, with the bride's name switched in for Daisy. after the ceremony while hors d'oeuvres were passed and champagne was poured I checked my phone discreetly of course and this was how I discovered that you'd lost as they say by a nose to blame everyone said you ran like a champion but I actually could not bring myself to watch that race until I sat down to write this letter even two and a half months later, knowing the outcome, it still made me cry. So, Zenyatta, you finished your career with a still-dazzling 19-1 and record. And there's no doubt you've left your mark on the history of horse racing, which I'll probably go back to not paying much attention to. But I will continue to follow what you're up to. A quick check-in at zenyatta.com, confirms that you're now happily retired back in Kentucky at Lanes End Farm. I imagine it won't be long before they start breeding you. People can't wait to see your babies. And I like picturing you there, grazing in an enormous green pasture surrounded by pristine white fencing, your sides heavy with foal. Maybe you're thinking back fondly on some of your most exciting victories and the roar of the crowd. Or maybe that so bad it's almost good country song written about you is stuck in your head. And Lexington's not that far away. Perfect road trip distance, in fact. Maybe I'll find my way down there soon with an armful of carrots and a six-pack of Guinness. Your friend,
10: Julie.
1: Dear Z, by Third Coast Artistic Director, Julie Shapiro. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at MyEmma.com. Support also comes from Frank Lloyd Wright's Unity Temple Restoration Foundation, presenting Roman Mars of 99% Invisible Thursday, April 18th at Unity Temple in Oak Park. For details, visit utrf.org. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation and the Monaki Foundation. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.